This is Terms of Reference Podcast number 156. Sometimes we see ourselves as like an orchestra. We're trying to conduct and make sure that everybody's playing in sync. But, you know, D-Rev is not the whole orchestra. We might be like the violin section and we might have a few flutes. But we really want to make sure that the whole orchestra is filled with really great partners that are well aligned, which I think is key, and serving our customers. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. A great deal of the actual work delivered in the social sector comes in the form of services. Of these services, the lowest hanging fruit is skill building, often known as capacity building. But there are, of course, many other flavors of services. Everything from helping to draft policies and plans, to the know-how behind running a power grid, to mapping service centers for at-risk youth. My point here is that delivering services is a tried and truly tangible means for getting your hands dirty helping others. While not new by any account, one of the more exciting areas of the social sector is delivery of products. I think product delivery is especially interesting for a number of reasons. The design and delivery of products offers the opportunity for true leapfrog moments, and the measurement of success of a product is extremely tangible in most cases. Finally, in most cases, the the evolution of a product as it iterates and is improved over time is again, extremely tangible and something that you can visually see very easily. But as we already know, designing and delivering and, and then properly servicing products is a challenging prospect, even in the best of circumstances. When you also add in the challenges associated with emerging economies in context, those challenges delivering a product are multiplied. This is why I'm excited to have Krista Donaldson as my guest for the 156th Terms of Reference podcast. Krista is the CEO of DREV, an organization that designs and delivers medical technologies that close the quality healthcare gap for underserved populations. As you've come to expect from our guests, Krista has been driving innovation in product design, engineering, and international development for more than 15 years. And her work has won her acclaim as one of Fast Company's co-designed 50 designers shaping the future. She's been a TED speaker and a World Economic Forum technology pioneer, among many other accolades. I think you're going to love this conversation about DREV's origins, the choices made to focus their product lines, and the challenges around finding high-quality suppliers and servicing. We also talk about my personal favorite aspect of their work, the never-ending march towards making products that people are obsessed about. I spoke with Krista in San Francisco. Now, before we get started, a word from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Krista. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks, Stephen. I'm so happy to be here. Krista, I know in you know some of the, the research I did before we talked and you know our, our little pre pre show conversation that we're on opposite sides of the planet. You're you're in San Francisco, California. How is the uh, how's the weather today? It's beautiful. It is my evening. I know it's your morning, and we finally are having a little bit of warm weather, which San Francisco summer is not known for. <laughs> I was just going to say, the I think the last person I had from from San Francisco said, you know, it's summertime, but uh, I'm still wearing a sweater, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would be accurate. At least we had a lot of rain, and at least we have a lot of flowers. So that's Ooh. that's that's the high. That's the good side. Exactly. You always got to look on the bright side, right? I mean, I, right. I, I live in a super hot swamp, but it's it's the tropics. We have bananas everywhere. <laughs> So that's right. <laughs> you're the you're the chief executive officer of an organization called DREV, 
I think that there's some really special stuff happening with Riva. I know we've had some. It's taken us a while to to get this uh, appointment scheduled, just because you are all over the place. If I can say, kicking ass and taking names. Why don't you just Why don't you tell us about how you came to DRev and just give us a little bit of background to start off with, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, maybe I'll start with our name because I think some people go D what? <laughs> DRev is short for Design Revolution and Design. DREV started in uh, 2007, just kind of getting going. Um, and it was started by Paul Polak, who wrote Out of Poverty, and Kirk Coleman, who was a Silicon Valley technologist. And originally, DREV was focused on product development and, and solving issues around the poor, which they defined people living on less than $2 a day. And then I was recruited in, in 2009, and um, I was brought in mostly to get products out and into the world. My background at that point, I had worked at Kickstart in Kenya and learned a ton. Um, and I had worked for the State Department, uh, the U.S. State Department in Baghdad and in Washington. So got to see, you know, what I would call product development at big scale was electricity reconstruction. So the product in that case was power plants. And then came back and was really excited to take over DREV. Now, so when I took over DREV, I shifted us from $2 a day uh, to $4 a day. And then we just lifted that because it our focus became closing health inequities. So it didn't matter to me whether you were living on $6 a day or $12 a day, but if you were unable to get the health care you needed because of there's just not a device there, that was a problem to be solved. Did healthcare choose you or did you choose healthcare? Because I mean, there's economic problems, there is, you know, there's food problems, there's nutrition problems, you know, That's was, right. it, was it just this was the one that, that showed up at your door and it, it made a fit or was there a particular reason? <laughs> Yeah, I, it's funny because maybe it chose us. Um, you know, when I when I took over, we were doing multiple projects, and uh, some of them were in health, and some of them weren't. But the ones that I chose to take forward, and I canceled many projects when I took over DREV, the ones I took forward were health. And as we really dug in and started to understand the problems and understand, you know, the challenges of getting a solution to hospitals and to clinics that could use them. Um, we started to build this expertise around health. And of course, as you start to build that expertise, you see so many more problems and you have doctors who ask. And I can even tell you, I, I met with a Nepalese Ministry of Health official a couple years ago, and I think he was kind of suspect of like another Westerner, you know, coming in with solutions. And, um, you know, I explained why we were there and, you know, we were asking permission to work with a hospital. And then kind of after talking to him, he said, well, what other products do you have? Mm, and he became mm -hmm. really interested in, you know, what else DREV had kind of once over. We, he got over the hump of like, we're in fact a nonprofit medical device company. Before we launch further into the solutions you have and, and how they've started to have impact and all that process, I think that there's an interesting moment here. You're someone who is a rarity on the show and that you didn't start the organization, right? You were recruited. That's true. So why That's was right. it why was it important for the founders to find you? You know, they started it. They they it looks sounds like they they stumbled along for three or four years. Obviously, they had a product line or lines that they were doing. Did, did they relate to you what the wake up call was for them to say we need somebody else to run this thing? Well, I think it was both the founders and the board, and they had a lot of really cool, exciting projects. And I, I think of when I think of DREV at that time when I took it over, it was this exciting skunk works. The idea of innovation and, you know, particularly technological innovation as offering solutions, you know, to address poverty that was still pretty new at the time. Um, I feel like, you know, if you look at the history of development, we've had these waves of technology coming in, you know, appropriate technology and, you know, just 
different things at different times. And they've also kind of gone out of style, but I feel like we were kind of in the upswing at the time. But we had a lot of really cool ideas and even many more prototypes, but they weren't getting to users. That's fundamentally why I was brought in. Okay. So take me down that path. What you said when you first came in, you know, you either shelved or got rid of a whole bunch of product lines. Uh, tell us about what you did focus on. Uh, I'll let you introduce at least a couple projects that are on your website and whatnot. Sure. And, and why were those the ones that you chose? Was was there a metric that you used or was there research that backed it said this is the one that we needed to do? Or was it just, we know we can produce this for cost effectively kind of thing? Yeah, a little bit all of the above, except for maybe the data. I giggled when you said that because I think one of the biggest challenges we all have is trying to get good data on Believe markets. Me, that is definitely one of the biggest challenges we all have for sure. <laughs> well, on the markets and also on our users um, because, you know, rarely marketing companies are not interested in products often that low-income people need or, or want or and even then, the data isn't collected based on need. It's more, ba you know, collected based on potential demand. So okay, so let me stop you there. Just and I apologize for for jumping in there, but does that mean that the sort of the bottom of the pyramid, the bottom billions, that just yeah. that that still just hasn't taken hold even in in sort of the socially connected world that we are in today? Not from what we see with data. <laughs> that is, it's still you know it's startling to me because I mean that paradigm that book was written what fifteen years ago. And it was, it, yeah. And it just, and it makes so much sense, especially with the rise of India, the rise of China, these kinds of things. But just then you, your experience marks so well with some of the other guests we've had on the show where they're like, you know what, this is fantastic and there's a real opportunity here. And I wonder if it's just, you know, the marketing companies just, they don't have the experience. They don't have any way to go access those billions. And so yes, I wonder if I, and I would agree with that. And I, you know, I heard um, an anthropologist who worked for a design company once talk about how to even do need finding with low income people. And his suggestion was to go on Facebook and, and you know, uh, check some boxes and then use that as a focus group. And I nearly fell out of my chair because almost all the users at that time, at least five years ago, weren't on Facebook. And we really found that like <laughs> the way to try and figure out the data is to go and talk to your users, which, you know, is not rocket science. And sometimes it means like showing up in awkward places and asking permission. But, you know, the way to learn from your target users is to go talk to them. So, I mean, the challenge of that is like you can't do it enough to get like the big picture data. But um, we have found over the years that we're always comparing what available data there is from the WHO or, you know, from different agencies to what we're seeing on the ground and always triangulating that to get, you know, kind of the best picture we can. Mm. So take us back, you know, we were talking about, you took a bunch of products off the shelf, you canceled a lot of product lines, and we were getting to the point about how you chose what it is, that, you know, the, the, the couple things that you move forward now. Sure, yeah. So when I took over, we had about five different projects, and they came from different sources. Some of them, one of the co-founders had identified as a problem and had some really neat prototypes. Others um, were developed in partnership with the Gates Foundation. Um, a few others were identified by just different derevers or volunteers or interns that were there. And so when I took over, I, I chatted with everybody, like, you know, what are you working on? What are you excited about? What do you think the challenges are? And um, I prioritized the ones that had a need based on users, meaning that a user, someone on the ground, a doctor or a nurse or a farmer or someone like that had identified a problem to either staff or something that staff became aware of. So I prioritized those right away. And that ended up actually canceling 
some of the ones that, you know, were led by donor agencies or ones mm-hmm. that even like the co-founder had come up with, because I felt like if it, this is not something the users have identified as problem, I'm not convinced they see it as a problem. So it turned out the the project we moved ahead, what is now Brilliance, um, which is phototherapy for severely jaundiced babies, it was identified by an Indian doctor to a colleague. And then the other project we moved forward, and it wasn't officially as part of DREV at the time, but kind of in an incubator arrangement, was what is now the Remotion Knee. And that was identified as a need by the Jaipur Foot Organization in India. Hey guys, real quickly, if you like what you're hearing, could you just please take a quick second to open up iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or whatever your podcast app happens to be and click on subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, consider giving the show a rating while you're there because it really does help get us up in the ratings and and get the word out to other people. And finally, please consider sharing this episode or the podcast in general on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you very much in advance. Now, back to the show with Kristen DRev. So take us to what DRev could be a vertical integrator. You could be, you know, selling these on Amazon. You could be, you know, starting your starting your own, you know, retail shops in these places where you serve. But what? So what's your special sauce? What are you doing to break this model? And, and how do you best serve these populations in need? I think it's really two things. I, I was thinking about it because, you know, I, I know usually we want to have this one concise answer on what our special sauce is. I think it's two things, though. One is that we are relentlessly focused on the problem and that you have to be user-centered. And as part of being user-centered, it's figuring out what is the best way to, like, what does the product need to look like, but what is the best way to get the product to the people who need it? And that's, you know, in our case, hospitals and clinics that are serving low-income people. We realized very early on that DREV was not the right you know, we were not the right people to be doing distribution. We have no reach. We have very little experience. We're certainly not experts in the markets we serve. So as part of our early need funding with Brilliance, particularly, we we would say to doctors, um, we'd be in a hospital. We were in many hospitals, by the way, even just doing the early need finding on Brilliance. We were in probably over 100 hospitals. But we would say to doctors, so tell us about the products you have. Which ones do you really like? Which ones do you not so much like, you know, compare these two products, because sometimes um, people are uncomfortable saying something negative about a product, particularly to, you know, a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd also, you know, ask, like, who responds to your servicing calls? Who are you happy with? And then we'd also really look in, at the consumables. So, for example, if a phototherapy device uses two bulbs, you know, are they burned out? How have they been replaced? How often does someone check on them? How hard is it to purchase the replacement bulbs? And so from that, we were able to generate a list of potential partners. We knew, at least for Brilliance, that we needed a partner who would do manufacturing, distribution, and sales, ideally. And that's how um, we found our partner, Phoenix Medical Systems in Chennai, India. They consistently came to the top of the list, and we knew very early on we needed a partner like that to be able to deliver our products to, to market and to solve a need. Mm, you're really you're a connector of the dots. You're, you're putting the whole thing together. Yeah, I and I would I would almost say like a connector of the dots and almost sometimes we see ourselves as like an orchestra, you know, like mm-hmm. we're we're trying to conduct and make sure that everybody's playing in sync. But you know, DREV is not the whole orchestra. We might be like the violin section and we might have a few flutes and like, you know, something else, but we really want to make sure that the whole orchestra is filled with really great partners that are well aligned, which I think is key, and serving our customers. 
So hope it's not too tough a question, but tell us about, you know, have you had a moment where you've put together a, a supply chain like this and you, either one of your partners just didn't show up to the table or, the, you know, the quality dropped off or those kinds of things? And how'd you deal with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, these things happen all the time. I'll tell you a, a story when Brilliance just launched and you have to imagine we've been working on it for years and you know, I think when people think about product design, they think about the really fun early stages where, you know, you're understanding the problem and you've got these great user insights and you're, you're developing features and you've got these really cool prototypes. Well, you do well, have a bunch of, of people on your website, you know, on with, with pieces of paper and they're sketching these cool <laughs> pictures and stuff. I mean, <laughs> we're always sketching, we're sketching our crochet list, Stephen. <laughs> But like, you know, you do this hard work to get a product to market and it's a lot of repetition and little detailed work and you're doing the regulatory dotting the I's and crossing the T's and then you get the product to market and the first batch of Brilliance units, which was only 25, sold like almost immediately. It was so exciting. Like I think they sold even before they left, but we found out in that first batch that about five of them had gone to a distributor in the Philippines and what happened is like he tripled the price. So part of our model oh. is that we have a world-class affordable product. And in that first batch, we learned very quickly that we couldn't control the price once it went from our partner Phoenix to a distributor. So it was a big lesson learned right away. And of course it's totally intuitive and we should have predicted that, um, but we didn't. <laughs> so that was that was a great mm -hmm. lesson learned right off the bat. And so just tie the knot on that, that model there for you. So now are you direct to consumer or, or you still go through distributors, but you just accept the fact that there could be price variation? Um, so a little bit of both. We So first of all, big lesson learned. And I'm, I'm a big advocate for making sure you follow your products and you keep following your products um, through distribution to users, to hospitals, making sure they get used, designing in a way to, if possible, monitor their usage. Um, because I do think too often in the social sector, there's a sense of like, oh, a product gets sold or it gets sent or it gets, you know, purchased, whatever it is. And then we can chop that up as a success. In that case, what we decided to do, what changed us is we started to be involved in vetting distributors. And that turned out to be really fantastic for us, too, because we got to know distributors. We got to better understand, you know, besides margins, what what do they care about? What are their challenges? What costs them extra money to do? And, you know, what are they seeing as needs in hospitals? And by understanding all of that, it helps us not just, you know, make sure Brilliance is, is getting where it needs to go, but it's helping us with all of our future product development. And we talk to other groups like Gradient Health based in New York, you know, because they're dealing with distributors too, and we can swap notes on that. So what we do now is um, we tr where we can, we vet distributors. And part of vetting it means like they're not going to increase the price too much. And they're going to allow us access to the data of where these units are installed. Because at DREV, we don't count any of our units towards impact. We have an algorithm for, for impact for brilliance, but we, we don't count our units towards impact unless we have confirmed installation, which means date serial number and location. And then once we have that, then we start, it goes into our algorithm to predict impact. Mm. But if we don't have that data, we can't. So we're trying to get distributors also to give us visibility on where these units go. One of the things that I love about what you're describing here is is a process. It's, you know, you're a nonprofit, but it's it's really this commercial approach to 
you know, putting this product on the street. I love it. You were just describing how a product can take two, three, four years to get to market or even to get to that, you know, that first prototype. How does that fund it? I mean, where does that come from? Is you, are you just sitting on a, a foundation or, <laughs> or is that one of your key jobs is to make sure that you're always kind of showing the next greatest thing to people to get investors or how does that work? Yeah. So we use philanthropic money for product development. So what we would call R&D and traditional product development. And we do make a little bit of money off our products, but not very much. And the reason is, and we, we've had people come to us and say, well, just increase the price of your products and you guys can be much stronger and, and build more products. And that's true. Um, and in fact, Brilliance and all of our products perform on par or better than some of the best products on the market in their class. But of course, there's a real price sensitivity around our users. And that's what we're really focused on is what is the price that is going to create the most impact. Because yes, we could mark up the price and eventually we might have impact, but to me, that's a big risk. So, so far we've been raising philanthropic funds for that R&D and I'll say it's challenging because we're asking donors to make a leap of faith that we're gonna come up with a great solution that is gonna have sustainable long-term impact with these very difficult to reach users in many cases. And do you find that conversation is is difficult? Because we've we've had some people on the show recently and in the less recent past that they're seeing a shift in philanthropy. They're seeing a shift in more traditional donors where, for instance, the Global Development Lab or, or some of the more forward-thinking large foundations, where they want to have this kind of revolutionary impact, right? Or they want to be doing things differently. So I guess my question is, what's your been, been your experience with that? Are you still, do you often f- find your pitch going, falling on deaf ears or, and, and there's just sort of a small group of people who are listening to this or is this a, a growing issue? I think it's growing. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm optimistic about it. I think one of the challenges is many in the donor community don't know where that innovation is going to come from. And we've been told multiple times, like, oh, you guys are so small. You know, innovation comes from universities. And I, and my kind of response is like, yeah, there's a lot of amazing innovation coming from universities, but rarely can universities bring things to market. Mm. They may be really great at testing things, really great at scaling up pilots, great at talking to governments and ministries. But in terms of getting a market-ready product that has all of the business considerations and all of the supply chain and things like that, that's really not their cup of tea. You know, I have a colleague, a dear friend of mine who I've, you know, for a long time, but this was one of his greatest laments. You know, he worked at a large research institution for a while and he said, I literally have 400 products sitting on the shelf here, (laughs) but I'm in an institution that has no capacity to commercialize any of this. It's not the function of a university or not function of that kind of institution. And so, Oftentimes, they just sit there and they're just undiscovered. And I think it's even harder on professors. And I'm, I can, I feel like I can say this with a decent amount of confidence because my husband's a professor. Um, <laughs> the incentives for them is to publish. It's not necessarily to bring products to market that are going to address the needs of the poor. And I, w- I would say your friend to call me if he ever wants to talk about any of his products. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's challenging. And I would take that back to for problems to really truly get solved. And that's how I think about innovation and design. You have to have alignment, you know, from the early research, the basic research, the translational research, through commercialization, and then through scaling. And what I do see in the donor community is a lot of investment in like the translational research, which again, is at mostly at universities. But for the translational research, like that cool concept or that cool idea to reach people, it 
A, has to be commercialized. And by commercialized, I mean like a product has to come out of it that can be sold in a sustainable way. And then it has to be scaled. And what scale means is like, it's one thing to bring a product out that's going to serve the high-end hospitals in India, like the Apollo system. That's not really having any impact. Like, you got to get it to the public hospitals. You got to get it to the public hospitals in like some of the more rural states, for example, like Uttar Pradesh or Rajasthan. And that's where to me, like the real impact happens. And that's like, that's a multi-step process. And it's hard to align interests and incentives across, you know, this product development, commercialization, scaling kind of chain of events. I want to sort of harken back to something that you said just at the beginning of the show, but you were, you know, you spoke with doctors and distributors and whatnot, and you said, what products do you like working with, right? What are your favorite things? Mm-hmm. One of the things I find most intriguing about, you know, when I was doing some background research on your site, especially like um, the Remotion product, which for everyone who's listening, it's a prosthetic knee uh, that you designed. One of the things I find most intriguing is that you put, you know, here's the first prototype that we had, here's version two, here's version three, and it's just <laughs> the, the, the substantial difference from one to three is just, it's breathtaking, right? And yeah. how important, so here's the question I want to ask, how important is sexiness? to moving this forward, right? So it's one thing to go to a person who's in need and say, hey, look, you know, we're going to change your life by giving you a new new knee. But does the the conversation totally change when you can also say, look at this sweet thing that I'm about to give you that's awesome? Is that a real big quality point there? It is a big thing. And I'll actually say it's it's interesting in two ways. I'll I'll tell you a story about Brilliance first, and I'm going to go to Remotion. When we were showing these really cool early stage prototypes on phototherapy, and one was like a blanket made of rubber where the light shone through so you could hold your baby and it it would receive phototherapy. And another one was like a little light thing that would um, attach to the back of your knee, the baby's knee. And then we had like some traditional designs, which were like, think of, you know, a big overhead light, essentially. And except for the high-end hospitals, everybody wanted like the basic looks like a standard phototherapy device. And one doctor said to me, he goes, I really like all your cool ideas, but you know, my patients want to feel like they're getting treated by a medical device. And I want a really good device that looks like what it's supposed to look like. Like essentially I need confidence and it is what it's supposed to be. And Mm -hmm. I want it to work damn well. So the first version of Brilliance was like pretty staid. Like it looked, the idea was to look comforting, especially because we were seeing that a lot of patients, um, their parents like had never actually been to a hospital before and sticking your child under this bright blue light was a little bit weird and scary. So we tried to make it as less weird and scary as possible. But, you know, then we introduced Brilliance Pro, which was the next generation of Brilliance. Um, And really, we were fixing all the things that users and doctors and nurses had said, hey, this could be a little bit better. Um, And then also just um, updating the design based on the latest kind of technological advances, too. But doctors were so excited about the slicker design. And we have gotten feedback both on Brilliance with Remotion, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute, too, where doctors like exude pride in having like a beautiful product and having something that is high tech and is designed for them because too often they're getting donated devices they're getting like in the case of prosthetic knees sometimes they're getting used knees which is better than nothing arguably but it's like this idea of like everything secondhand or a product that's been defeatured not designed for them but defeatured mm-hmm. for a lower a lowering 
income market. So yes, I think it's every doctor or clinician aspires to use the best possible products they can for their patients. With our Remotion Knee, yes, we have had a lot of prototypes. We've done a lot of redesign. And that's a particularly interesting one because most of our patients have lost their limb through traumatic injury. Um, most often from vehicle accidents. And they're young, they have their whole lives ahead of them, and they want a knee that blends in. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I say that because there's a huge social stigma, but people who were born with a disability where they would need a prosthetic, they tend to be more focused on the functional as compared to like the blending in aspect. So we really understood, you know, our users, often young men, because they're out and about, you know, going to jobs, going to whatever, but this desire to blend in, which is why, you know, a lot of focus on reducing the noise of the knee when it's when it's operating, um, a lot of focus on a smooth gait so that when you see someone walking with a prosthetic limb, it's not obvious. And just like, yes, a sleek kind of profile. The one counterpoint I'll add is that I was meeting with a donor one time who will go nameless. <laughs> and he said, you know, Crystal, what you're doing is really, really cool. But I got to be honest with you, your products just aren't very sexy. And I got kind of mad because I was like, well, is Impact Sexy? Because <laughs> that's what this is about. <laughs> it's not about the product. It's about solving the problem. But, you know, I get it. And this was in Silicon Valley. And what he meant was there's this idea here of, like, the silver bullet, you know. like Sure, these, the unicorn in development, man. It's the unicorn. Exactly. And I think the global health community and the aid community, like, they fall in love with things just the same way. And everybody loves like the really cool product insight and the, like that potential for a silver bullet. And as we all know, rarely do we see unicorns in the social sector. Well, my daughter sees them all the time, but that's, that's, that's <laughs> pleasing. Uh, we love optimists like that. We had a you know we had another gentleman on the show a long time ago. He's uh, he works for an organization called LionGate Technologies, and one of the things that I found interesting about their approach was that they were designing for in them it was mobile devices for for medical um, in the developing world but they were designing mm -hmm. them to be able to then also market them in the United States and Europe etc yep. do you also have that kind of broad distribution where yes we're we're focused on solving the problem in Rajasthan but this could hey you know if you want to buy this in California you go right ahead <laughs> it depends on the regulatory class of our products so what that means is we are really clear that our like our focus as users where there's there's a clear gap in the quality of care and and I don't think I mentioned this but our focus is um, referral facilities um, so hospitals and clinics where patients are referred in and what that means is you will often have very skilled very diligent doctors who just don't have the tools they need to save lives or to remobilize and you know kind of help people return to a life like they either could potentially have or once new. That also means that often those facilities have like decent infrastructure in terms of like reliable power, not not totally reliable, but more reliable than we see with some of the smaller clinics. We do have purchasers in the US and Canada, often they're taking them somewhere else. So for example, um, we have many knee buyers and they'll be taking them to Latin America or to clinics there that they have relationships with. One thing I was gonna say is that we, we don't necessarily exclude markets, but the cost for some medical devices for FDA, so our regulatory approval here in the U.S., it can be really high. So, for example, if we wanted to get FDA approval for Brilliance, we're probably looking at up to a million dollars investment just to get that approval. Mm. And because we don't see a need here in the U.S., it's not it's not something we're pursuing. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. One of the questions I like to ask is, 
about you know what kind of disruptions that you're seeing in your in your sector yeah. and those kinds of things and i'd love for you to talk about that but i'd also like for you to then also veer into the competitive space so when you go to yeah. a hospital you're competing for the attention of the doctors and administrators because they've got limited budgets and these kinds of things. Is that becoming an increasing problem as the social sector continues to sort of expand and flex its muscle and other people are coming in, or is that not really a thing? I love competition. And as a nonprofit, I feel really comfortable saying that because my goal is for doctors and ministries and health bureaucrats to have as much choice in getting a quality, affordable device as possible. So part of our model at DREV is that we really would like to see some of the big companies, you know, drop their price and compete with us. And we're actually starting to see that in India. We've seen phototherapy device costs come down significantly. And, you know, we can't necessarily say we're the cause of that. But to us, like, that's the greatest thing that can happen if our goal, again, is to address a gap in healthcare. So... What's the next two or three years look like? Do you have a product lines that you're excited about? Is it steady as she goes? Are there some, <laughs> some significant hurdles that you're or milestones that you're hoping to either overcome or achieve? Where are you taking the organization? Yeah, so great question. Um, I'm laughing because like there's no steady as it goes <laughs> in product development. Come on, come on, no. Which is kind of, I have to say, part of the fun for people like me because we're always learning and we're learning about new conditions and we're learning about new challenges. And what's also really exciting, which we didn't talk about, is we're starting to see the market and doctors become much more sophisticated and articulate in what they want and expect from their products, which I think is great. So for us in the next three years, Brilliance is continuing to scale very well. Um, as of the end of Q1 of this year, um, we estimate that Brilliance has treated over 250,000 babies. Um, and that's from 18 countries that we have confirmed installations. And we've sold to 45 countries, which still kind of blows my mind because it's only four years after it launched. What's exciting is that our Remotion Knee is fully coming to market. We've had great feedback um, from users and the market in general. Our team just re returned from the big International Society for Prosthetics and Orthotics meeting in Cape Town and huge amount of interest, which is exciting. And now we're, we're setting out and doing new product development. In the next three years, we hope to bring um, two more products to market or as close to market as we can, because it really, again, depends on how complex the product development is going to be. And our goal is to show a repeatable model, show a repeatable model of designing user-centered quality devices that are affordable and leveraging the private sector to scale, you know, scale distribution and scale the product itself to the places that most need it. So what do you spend most of your time? Is I mean, are you are you hovering over the prototypes of new designs and, and potentially are, are, are you out there? And obviously a CEO's job is everything and, and nothing at the same time. But yeah. where, where do you find you focus your time? Is it is it setting up these supply chains? Is it finding new partners, uh, opening new markets? It's a mix. Yeah, it's a mix. And I have to say, um, being a CEO is really fun because you get to work on the vision and you get to work with amazing people. And so like a typical, you know, kind of, set of activities over a week might be, you know, being involved with negotiations with a distributor and, you know, talking to partners and donors. I try and always do field work a couple times a year. And what that means is like, I'm out with our staff talking to doctors and trying to understand their needs. And um, I love that too, because, you know, I've been doing this for a number of like a number of years now, and I, I can see the trends that have been happening. And, you know, like I was saying, like doctors becoming much more sophisticated about what they need and and being demanding, which they should be around great servicing and warranties and 
and also just getting to better understand who users are and, and, you know, their fears and their hopes for their kids and their families. At what point do you think that you become sort of a, a standard in the market? Or is that possible? I mean, is brilliance now in these countries that you're operating in, is it, does it have the power to shift what happens in these markets or the Remotion product? Does it have the power to shift and become kind of the standard or is that even a goal? Do you care? Yeah, you know, I would love if something like that happened. I would love for there to be, for every medical device, a quality, affordable option for every hospital in the world. You know, morally, I I struggle with the idea of like maximizing profits with medical devices if that means that people are dying and children have brain damage. So I would love there to be a product that doesn't have to come from DREV where there's always quality options for doctors at every price point. Just a couple more questions here. So you've, we've talked a lot about impact. Tell us why that's super important to you, what your special, you know, sort of process is for understanding that. And, and you know, how important is that for you to obviously go back to your donors and, and make the case, but then also make the sale when you're breaking a new market open? So what we often see with the sale, I'll start backwards, is unless it's the ministry Often our buyers don't care about impact. What they care about is a quality product that's going to be durable and reliable. We care about impact because, you know, if we're not solving a problem, like everything we've done up to this point doesn't count. You know, I don't think it counts to get a product to market if it's not going to solve the problem we set out to solve. So we're very deliberate about collecting impact and where possible we'll design, we'll design into our devices some way for them to monitor their usage and and predict, you know, essentially their impact. And that's one of the reasons why we want to know where all of our units go, because, you know, if it's a public hospital, for example, in a lower income country, and, you know, I'm just thinking we had a a tender to Kenyan hospitals, and we want to know, like, you know, which counties they're going to, because we can, we have a sense of, you know, what the newborn mortality is already in in some of these areas, we also have a sense of, you know, what the priorities are. So we track impact to understand if we're solving the problem to make sure the units are going to the right places and they keep getting used. And then also we want to keep following up on our products so that we can learn for future product development. And, you know, we've learned a lot of things. Like, for example, when a public hospital or a public system purchases our units, often the time it takes to install and turn on the device can be like up to half a year. And that's important for us to know, too, because we don't want to be counting too much impact. But we also want to understand, like, what are the challenges that are that are blocking, you know, public hospitals from being able to install units faster? And is there anything we can do to, like, speed that sort of thing up? That's a really intense bottleneck there. You know, like six months to turn something on. I just give me the two seconds. on Why is that? Is that just it's a mixture of reasons? Yeah. And and a lot of times with tenders, you know, what will happen is you know, hospitals may or may not be asking for devices. And then, you know, units just show up and they may not have the space for the units and not just like brilliance units, but units in general, um, any kind of medical device. They might not be expecting it. You know, the guy who does installations, you know, isn't available for like a month. Like it's, it's, it's a mixture of problems and it's pretty consistent in the sense of, you know, low resources, there may not be a biomedical engineer to do the installations. The distributor may not have enough resources, depending on how the contract went. A number of things. And, you know, another thing we we saw with fieldwork from Brilliance is 75% of the time in public hospitals, more than one baby is being treated under a single unit. 
And um, that's something we watch very closely because ideally you'd only have one baby under a unit because of, of cross-contamination. One more question before I, before I give you, you know, the standard final two. One thing I noticed when doing my sort of my research for this, for this interview is that like so many organizations, you have prominently featured both a board and an advisory board in mm. you know, for DREV. And I just kind of, I, I very rarely ask about this, but it struck me as these are, you know, you, you've put them out there in a, in a way as, as if they're part of your team, as if this is, these are people who are regularly contributing. Tell me about your relationship between those two bodies and, and how important are they for not only your day-to-day, but just sort of keeping things alive and, and moving the organization forward. Yeah, so we um, we really engage, first of all, our board of directors, and they obviously have fiduciary and governance duties over us. And we actually just had a board meeting yesterday, which is why Steve and we're talking today. <laughs> <laughs> but they're very engaged. And I, I would say, you know, as we're kind of setting our strategy going forward, they've really been helping we staff think through that and think through like, where do we really need to be building capacity? I mean, we're a small organization and we're 10 people. So when we have the funding to bring in new skills, we want to be, we, we want to make good use of that. With our advisors, they're critical. And we've been pretty informal, I would say, with our advisors. And in fact, um, one of the things we're, we're going to be doing in the next two months is formalizing more of our advisors because we have advisors across distribution sales, marketing that aren't necessarily reflected as long along with like, you know, medical experts and global health experts and all sorts of things. Right now, what it is, is like, we'll call up and be like, you know, Dr. Bhutani, we're having a hard time understanding like the latest jaundice data or, you know, what this hospital is saying, can you help us interpret it? And um, we have found our advisors incredibly giving. You know, the third group, though, I would say we're really heavily dependent on and aren't represented on our website yet, but will be pretty soon, is our partners. You know, we work very closely with Phoenix Medical Systems in India. That is our our partner in bringing brilliance to market. We work very closely with um, a rehabilitation doctor named Dr. Pooja Mokul in Jaipur, India. We're really reliant on these partners to, to help us do our work better. And I, I think sometimes like people look at our small team and they say, whoa, how are they doing all that? And it's really because of, of this incredible network of partners, advisors, and our board. Mm. The last two questions I have for you are two that I ask every, uh, every guest here on the show. And the first one is, who do you pay attention to? You're, you're in a fortunate position where you get to fly around the world and, and not only meet your partners and meet your, the people that you're impacting, but you, know, you also speak with this, this board of advisors and, and these types of things. But... Are there publications? Are there Twitter feeds? Are there, you know, books that you would recommend to our audience to say, you know, this is just a font of knowledge that everybody should be tuned into? Oh, gosh, that's hard. I I love NPR and the BBC. (laughs) And I'm a big radio listener just because I think I've lived in so many places and it, it feels like... I grew up listening to the CBC in Canada. I'm Nova Scotian originally, so I have like this real love, but I'm one of those people who reads everything. And I would say the people I listen to most, which I know is a bit trite, but is honestly like our users. Like that's where in terms of really trying to understand problems is I will move mountains to make sure that I have really good conversations with doctors who are trying to fix things in certain districts or or things like that. So I would say a combination of like I read everything and then I, I really try as much as possible to talk to to users and people who are implementing things on the ground. Mm. My last Which question. I know is not, not necessarily the greatest answer. <laughs> it, it, it's a fantastic answer because it continues to add to the data points of people who, who have used that answer to say, look, listen to the people who you're affecting, right? The last question is, is 
this is your opportunity to sort of give a shout out to something that may not even be related to DREV at all. Uh, an innovation, a technology, a process, a fantastic idea that you just think is a potential game changer for, for serving those in needs that you, you think needs a little more exposure. Anything like that in your life? One of the shout outs I want to give is to Rwanda and Partners in Health who are starting a global health university. So the, the University of Global Health Equity. And I am so excited that there is going to be a focus on the issues of health, you know, in one of the places that has been most forward thinking in terms of addressing challenges and doing it in a way that demands for contextually appropriate solutions. I met with Dr. Añez, who's the former minister of health with Rwanda earlier this year, and she is she is determined to make that university like a centerpiece for the world. And I think mm. they're going to teach all of us so much. And my hope is that they'll have a medical device design group there and start solving problems for the world, too. That is fantastic. Krista, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. And, you know, I wish DREV all the best and hope that we'll get to talk to you again. Thank you, Stephen. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 